Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And this episode, we're going to discuss the pervasive and critical role of shame in mental illness and in our lives generally. The first post we'll read describes how essentially all mental illness symptoms boil down to shame. The second helps us differentiate between grief, guilt, and shame. The third helps us point out shame in common stressful situations, and the last gives specifics in how shame arises as an adaptation in children. So this first post we're going to read is called, Why Is It Shame? I talk a lot about shame in therapy. Why? Because I find that shame is the source of nearly all mental health problems. This post explains how I came to that conclusion. Mental illness becomes rather simple if we think of it in evolutionary terms. Thoughts, emotions, and behaviors happen for a biological reason. They aid in survival in some way. The unhelpful thoughts, emotions, or behaviors we have are adaptations to pain, which I define here as anything that signals a threat to the survival of the organism. Anxiety or anger is the activation of the fight-or-flight response in the brain, which happens because the animal's survival feels threatened with pain in some way, either due to the present stressor or how the present stressor triggers data from past stressors. Depression is the shutdown of survival functions in the face of overwhelming or inescapable pain. It is best to shut down feelings and functions if pain seems inevitable. These basic mental illness profiles, as well as their more developed versions, such as in bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD, or personality disorders, can almost always be explained as reactions to pain. We need to find out what the source of that pain is and teach the brain to react to it more effectively. Someone is diagnosable with a mental illness if their reaction is maladaptive to their situation. For example, they're more angry or anxious than fits the current environment or scenario. So we can bet that much of the pain we're addressing in therapy is from the past. If someone has excessive anger but still lives in a war zone, it may not be a mental disorder because it makes sense and serves a useful function. One kind of pain that can trigger a disorder is physical pain. When you get in a car crash, or bitten by a dog, or caught in an earthquake, your existence is threatened physically, and your brain may develop wiring to avoid similar kinds of pain in the future, such as through a phobia of cars, dogs, or tall buildings. The effect would depend on the intensity of the pain, which we can say correlates to the amount of damage done or degree that your existence was threatened. If intense enough, it creates a classic profile of PTSD. In my experience, this wiring from physical pain is actually easier to treat than the next kind I'll discuss, because the source of pain is easily identifiable, and exposure to that source without any painful consequences leads to direct rewiring of the fear response. It is readily unlearned. This to say that it's much easier to treat a phobia of dogs than it is to treat a phobia of social situations, which I'll explain more here. The second kind of pain is emotional. However, the lower brain cannot actually distinguish emotional from physical pain. I find that emotional pain boils down to two forms, grief or shame. Both of these kinds signal threats to the organism. Grief, induced by a loss, indicates non-lethal damage. It can really hurt, but it is not a threat to one's existence. Pains of grief are easier to recover from than pains of shame, which are a threat to existence. Shame 
is the term we use in therapy for anything that indicates a sense of diminished value. Some of its forms are feeling rejected, abandoned, isolated, embarrassed, less than, neglected, disregarded, manipulated, controlled, bad, hopeless, unimportant, stuck, not good enough. You get the point. You can tell it is shame if it ultimately makes you feel like your existence doesn't matter or is diminished or matters less than other people's. This is a threat to your organism because feeling worthless leads to death, either from oneself or others. As a side note, what you know about your worth may not change your feeling. Feelings happen despite knowledge and logic. Shame happens whether or not you think it should. Continuing, the excess of emotions that characterize many mental illnesses, fear and anger, can also be traced back to shame. Anger is the aggressive response to feeling hurt or threatened with hurt, and that pain is either emotional or physical. If there is no physical source, it is emotional, and must either be grief or shame. Fear is the avoidance of that pain. If the fear or anger end up causing you significant problems, the pain they are responding to is likely shame, the stronger threat to your survival. Here are some examples of how common presenting problems in therapy boil down to shame. A teen girl presents with an eating disorder. She knows starving herself is unhealthy and even not considered attractive by most people, but she cannot act according to that knowledge. She is driven by a feeling of shame, the pain of not being good enough if she isn't skinny. It's a message that sunk in while observing her mom's critical comments of her own body, and her dad's comments that she might get more dates if she lost weight, and the pervasive body shame and valuation in society. Because shame is a pain that threatens her very existence, it trumps logic and willpower as it activates maladaptive survival functioning. An English major develops depression in his third year of college, and he has to drop his classes. He feels unmotivated, feeling that all his efforts are pointless. Further exploration finds that he feels he has no choice. Make the grades to get into a prestigious law school, or disappoint his father. He really wants to write fantasy novels, but he is caught in a double bind. Do what he wants and feel shame, or do something he hates, likely fail, and then feel shame. Since all roads lead to a pain that would make him feel worthless, his body shuts down with depression, as it should. A housewife presents with generalized anxiety, finding she has a hard time sitting still, especially if any part of the house isn't spotless. She yells at her husband and kids if they don't keep the house perpetually tidy. She doesn't believe in yelling at people and feels guilty about this, and knows no one really cares how tidy the house is, except maybe her mom? Yet, she can't shake the anxiety she gets and the frustration she feels with her family. When she finally sits with the feeling, she finds it's the same feeling she got when her mom would come home. It is a fear of getting shamed and criticized for slight imperfections. This is the pain her brain associates with having an imperfect house, which drives her to behaviors and feelings inappropriate to the situation. The housewife's husband works long hours and comes home to an earful of nagging. After a long day of feeling defeated at his dead-end job, the pain of criticism hits extra hard. He feels that his efforts are not good enough and that he is not valued. Rather than take his pain out on his family, he heads out to the bar to numb his feelings. He wishes that he could spend more time at home, but he cannot effectively cope with his stress in that environment. The alcohol and absence from his family are ways to cope with the pain of shame. And last example, your friend is a fixer. Whenever you try to tell her about anything hard going on, she immediately tries to make you look at the bright side, reassure you, or give you solutions to your problem. You've told her before that you just want her to listen, but she always resorts to fixing. Since this behavior doesn't change when you tell her it isn't helpful, you can tell it is not the result of a loving desire to help. 
you would likely find that she feels responsible for your feelings and can't stand the anxiety in herself when you are distressed, so she needs it to go away as soon as possible. Her anxiety stems from the fact that if she can't make your problem go away, then she is not good enough. Maybe she was parentified as a child. Maybe her parents vented their adult feelings on her and made her feel responsible. I could go on to tell you how nearly all mental health symptoms can be traced back to some form of shame, even narcissism, but we won't do that here. But once we identify the shame, which is the source of the symptom, we can more effectively treat the problem. We not only manage the symptoms using coping skills, such as with mindfulness, exercise, or journaling, but we can make systemic changes to keep shame from coming in, such as by confronting your mom about her critical comments. And we can treat the unhealed emotional wounds of the past through trauma processing. All right, our next post here is grief, guilt, and shame. Helping people resolve their mental health issues often requires proper identification of their emotions. A common exchange in therapy looks like this. How does it make you feel when your spouse does this to you? It makes me feel frustrated. Oh, if I was you, I might feel devastated if that happened. Resentful, neglected, betrayed, lonely? Yeah, I guess it's more like that. I thought so. Appropriately naming and expressing emotion is essential to addressing the feeling. Your spouse might tolerate frustration, not being too concerned about a small version of anger, but they cannot ignore devastation if that is actually how you feel. Grief, guilt, and shame are different and must be treated differently to achieve resolution. Let us define them. Grief. Sadness over a loss. When you lose a loved one, a relationship, an opportunity, time, or possessions, it is healthy and natural to feel sad about it. Expressing and validating this sadness helps take away the sting. The grief of some losses, such as loved ones, may never go away completely, but it can be reduced over time as the feeling is processed and new people and things are incorporated into your life. Some kinds of grief are more complicated. They might include resentment, relief, happiness, fear, or any other emotion that may or may not seem contradictory. Complex grief is treated through validation, expression, and exploration of all of those feelings. Guilt. This is the grief over the hurt that your actions have produced, and it incites a desire to repair. It is resolved when you have given a good faith effort to make amends where possible. If there's nothing more to be done, maybe the person forgave you, you paid off your debt, or you apologize more than sufficiently, then you should not be left with any guilt. Shame. The shame of feeling bad, broken, inadequate, less than, not good enough, or not worth forgiving. This is the feeling that not only have you done something hurtful, but your actions are reflective of your inner character or intentions, and you deserve to feel pain. When you have done everything you can to make amends, but still feel, quote, guilty, it is more likely that you are feeling shame. This only goes away when you develop compassion for yourself. Obviously, these three emotions often arise simultaneously, but the identification and separate processing of each will resolve them more easily. Let's look, take a look at a few scenarios. Parenting. A teenager begins therapy for suicidal ideation and tells the therapist about all the ways his parents have made him feel shame. The therapist meets with the parents, informing them that they have done nothing objectively wrong in parenting, but that their child is feeling hurt. The therapist gives the parents recommendations and their relationship with their son improves. They learn which of their actions contributed to the suicidal ideation. The parents feel grief that their son has been hurting for so long without the help he needed. They can process this by expressing sadness about the tragedy of their son's pain. 
They feel guilty as their words and actions have hurt the son, likely without their knowledge. Their general approach, which they thought was much better than how they were raised and was not seen as hurtful to their other children, so they didn't suspect they were doing something hurtful to this child. They processed the guilt by validating their son's feelings, expressing sympathy and regret if appropriate, making repairs, and changing their behaviors if possible. But they may also feel shame. This is the feeling that they are incompetent, inconsiderate, or bad parents. This feeling is helpful to no one. It is also not true. These parents have been trying their best with what they've had, and at no point did they want to hurt their child. They are not bad parents, even if they did not have access to today's parenting research or their child's articulated feelings. The shame is only released when the parents forgive themselves for being imperfect, which may involve resolving shame from much earlier experiences in their lives. Next example, relationships. A college student has had painful dating experiences. Like other college girls, she may date someone for two to three months, sometimes longer, then get dumped or dump. Whenever she is the one to dump, she feels worse than if she gets dumped. The grief may come from the fact that this last relationship didn't work out. She may be looking for a long-term partner, and this last relationship was with a really great person, but they just weren't compatible. It's really sad that it had to end. She should process her sadness with someone close to her. The guilt may come from the fact that she broke up over text, which is often perceived as impersonal and inconsiderate. She recognizes how this could be hurtful, so she could resolve the guilt by apologizing in person, maybe. But perhaps she feels shame about hurting someone's feelings. She knows she shouldn't feel like a terrible person because no one is responsible for other people's feelings, and pain is very natural in breakups. She knows no relationship should continue to exist just because one person is afraid to hurt the other's feelings. It's a very poor foundation for a relationship. In the process of developing compassion for herself and permission to set boundaries, she may reflect on her childhood, wherein she received messages that she is to sacrifice her own well-being at all times, that hurting others' feelings regardless of context is bad or evil, and that her own needs are not important. Processing the feelings and experiences associated with these messages will help her forgive herself and eliminate the shame. And last example of complex grief. A man's father passes away. On his deathbed, the father writes a letter expressing remorse for his physically and verbally abusive behavior toward his children throughout their early years, and that he felt lonely in his final years as most of them cut ties with him, including this son. The adult son feels grief at his father's death. Though he had many negative experiences with his father and needed to set boundaries with him, he loved his father and knew he was loved in return. However, this grief is complicated by a relief that the father can no longer hurt anyone else, resentment that the father waited to apologize on his deathbed, and regret that the son had not gone to see him and perhaps make repairs. The son feels guilt for not reaching out to his father in later years, knowing the father was likely lonely and hurting. He can address this guilt by going to the funeral, writing a letter to the father that he leaves on his grave, or writing a memoir of positive experiences or attributes of the father. But the son feels shame that he felt relief and resentment at his father's passing. The son feels it is disrespectful to have comfortable emotions at someone's death. And it is useless to feel angry toward a dead person anyway. This shame is overcome when the son allows himself to feel and validate the emotions he thinks he shouldn't have. If he validates them, he can explore them, 
perhaps coming to realize that the relief stems from experiences of actual pain from the father that the son would not wish on anyone else. And it is okay to feel that others are safer with this man gone. And the anger stems from the fact that the son would rather have made repairs, indicating that this relationship was actually important to him, regardless of the lack of contact. This insight would likely reduce the shame and replace it with compassion and healthy grief. To conclude, grief, guilt, and shame are difficult emotions to experience. They are the most basic forms of emotional pain. However, each can be reduced, transformed, or eliminated by effective identification, validation, and processing. They must be felt to be treated and healed. The most damaging and lasting of these emotions is shame, which is the hardest to process. If you feel you have processed a feeling extensively, but see no change, there's likely a component of shame to it that needs to be uncovered. This next post is called Wanting versus Needing. Why do I hate sex? Sorry, this post isn't all about sex, but bear with me. During a recent weekend, I enjoyed some of my valuable leisure time writing the equivalent of a three-page, double-spaced, 12-point Times New Roman paper analyzing relationship dynamics in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, now found on the blog. I did the same thing in 12th grade and disliked the task immensely, so why did I like it this time? Here, I analyze the psychology of wanting to do something versus needing to do something. Here are some common behaviors that people should like, but resent doing because they feel like homework assignments. Eating healthy and exercising. Having more sex with their partner. Engaging in spiritual or religious activities. Visiting in-laws. Engaging in a spouse's hobby. Engaging in a particular, in an extracurricular that a parent enjoys. There's a running trend in these and other activities that drains them of the pleasure they should produce. You feel like you need to do them not that you have a choice and want to do them. So how does this create resentment and anxiety? Well, let's think of why you feel you need to. If you receive the message that you are unworthy, disgusting, or unlovable if you don't achieve a certain body image, then your journey to a healthy weight and diet is not about physical health. It is the only alternative to feeling shame, and is thus highly associated with the pain you received of those old messages. If you are the lower desire partner and are just having sex to make your partner happy and resenting them for it, you cannot enjoy sex because this is an anxious behavior. You are afraid your partner will stop loving you or lash back if you don't satisfy them sexually. And if your partner doesn't love you, you are likely to feel bad about yourself. You are avoiding shame, not seeking pleasure and connection. You are likely to feel uncomfortable in spiritual or religious activities if you find yourself avoiding hell rather than seeking heaven. Everybody makes mistakes, but those who feel condemned for their mistakes are more likely to feel anxious in church. Maybe you were at church when you were made to feel unworthy or shame for your mistakes. But I've noted more people getting that message primarily from family members instilling the fear of hell to control their behavior. As far as I understand various religious doctrines, making mistakes does not condemn you. Family members transmit condemning messages much more than Jesus does. Visiting in-laws, winning state for dad, joining a book club with your spouse, all these things make you resentful if you are doing them to feel lovable in the eyes of your loved one or to avoid conflict. You engage in them anxiously because you feel the alternative is not to be worthy of love. If you feel unworthy of love, you feel shame. So, in the end, you have a choice to A. Succeed in the resented behavior or B. Feel shame or be punished some other way. Quite the double bind, and your freedom of choice is violated. 
So what's option C? Find out why you only have two bad choices, then break out. The double bind is often encapsulated in a low self-esteem, strong responsibility for others' emotions, and fear of being alone, all of which can be treated. This last post is why kids blame themselves. Catastrophic thinking is a common symptom in adult anxiety. However, it is a common occurrence in even the healthiest of young children. Luckily, many kids are able to discuss their catastrophic thoughts with validating adults so they don't persist and become symptoms of later anxiety. One of the most common kinds of catastrophic thinking involves evaluations of the self or attributing bad outcomes to the self. It's all my fault. I'm a bad person. I can't do anything right. I'm a screw up. I'm not very smart. Nobody likes me. Babies are not born with these thoughts. They must get instilled through experience. They exist for a reason. Children are sent these messages either directly or they get interpreted indirectly from the environment around them. Messages coming from family members are especially sticky. Children are impressionable and tend to accept messages from those close to them as truth. If dad tells me I'm a screw-up, it must be true. Unless these messages are identified and effective repairs are made, they may persist and cause problems down the line. It's easy to spot those direct messages, such as in yelling, hitting, or criticizing, but the indirect messages may be harder to spot and treat. You can see more in the posts praising and comparing children and what it means to judge not. But the knowledge that kids tend to attribute external stress to their own badness or their fault can help us identify things to treat. This tendency is actually a defense mechanism people, to develop, people develop to reduce pain in the short term. For example, imagine a child who comes home to a depressed mother. She tries to get mom's attention to tell her about what happened at school, but mom is disinterested. Feeling lonely and growing desperate, the child acts out, turning on the TV and blasting the volume. The mom snaps out of her apathy and scolds her. The child feels shame at being scolded, but also knows her actions led to mom's anger. It is the child's fault. Because the child knows her actions can snap mom out of depressive states, she comes to feel that she is responsible for mom's depression as well. She needs to think this way, because the alternative is even more scary and painful. What if the child believed there was nothing she could do to get mom's attention, and nothing she could do to change mom's depressed mood? What if traumatic things happened to her, and she was neglected, and there was nothing she could do about it? Then, she is not only bad and worthless, but she lives in a world where she gets hurt and there's nothing she can do about it. A literal living hell. It is much better for her to believe that she is bad and is the cause of her mother's problems. If so, this opens the possibility that, if she gets it right someday, her mother will feel better. She gains an artificial sense of control from this belief that gives her hope to survive. This is a fairly common example of how children take it personally, as a survival mechanism. Children blame themselves because it gives them a sense of control over when something is hurting them. Some other examples of how these beliefs look. Daddy is yelling at me. It must be because I am bad. Maybe if I do the right thing, he won't yell at me. The alternative is, Daddy is yelling at me because he has a problem. I can't do anything about it. I live in a scary world where I can be hurt randomly by Daddy's uncontrolled feelings. Next example. Mom and Dad got divorced because I wasn't good enough and made them stressed. If I work really hard, maybe they'll get back together. This kind of thinking, though maladaptive, induces hope in the short term. 
But the alternative is, my parents got divorced for reasons outside my control. Relationships are chaotic and hurtful, and I should avoid them. Last example. Mommy is spending more time with baby than with me. She doesn't love me as much as baby. Maybe if I act like baby, she will love me again. The alternative is, mommy's love comes and goes randomly. I can feel loved or rejected at times beyond my control. Can you see how the first statements are less painful than their, than their alternatives, the true alternatives? They create a counterfeit hope that may stave off the hopelessness of the alternatives, at least for a short while. The downside to this thinking is that it is unsustainable long term. The child will come to learn that there is little she can do that can keep dad from yelling when his anger is triggered, nothing that will make mom and dad get back together, and that acting like baby will only annoy mom and lead to feeling less loved. The fear the child has been avoiding with the first belief has been realized, hopelessness sets in, and the child must either succumb to depression or rebel against this no-win scenario. If dad learns to control his anger and makes repairs, divorcing parents maintain a consistent healthy dialogue about the child's feelings, and mom identifies the child's fear of being unloved and makes adjustments, these self-attributing feelings no longer become necessary and the child can feel safe. If not, mental illness will likely creep in. So why is this important to know? First, if your child starts openly expressing self-defeating thoughts, don't argue with them. Validate the feelings and find out where they come from if you can. Arguing with a shameful thought keeps the feeling from flowing out and makes a child feel shame for feeling shame. Second, self-defeating thoughts persist because they are hard to talk about. They are illogical and often get invalidated. Checking in regularly with kids and letting them know that all feelings are valid will help you nip shame in the bud. Third, many adult anxiety symptoms stem from suppressed feelings of shame that arose from experiences where they took it personally as children. Identifying these kinds of thoughts in yourself and exploring them may lead you to the experiences where they got instilled and aid in your own recovery. Fourth, if you know somebody that takes it personally a lot, you can bet it's because of their own shame, which arises from real experiences they've had. Maybe knowing this will help you be more compassionate. Self-attributing thoughts are a defense mechanism that wards off hopelessness and are not a sign of weakness. So those are, those are all the posts in today's episode. A huge component of working through emotional issues is naming them and making sense of them. This can go a long way in guiding treatment directions. Hopefully the information in this episode has been useful for you in putting words to you or your loved one's emotions. Please feel free to reach out with questions or other topics you'd like to hear about. Thank you so much.